Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Yordana Osman, here with my friend Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachet Pesachim, daf Ayin Gimel, 73. Well, I'm actually going to back up and start on Ayin Bet. Uh, there was a little portion there, but yesterday's daf was so long, and it went over to today's daf. Uh, there's a very interesting brisa that starts in the previous daf about Rabbi Tarfon. And the Gemara in the previous daf is discussing this concept of Utruma Hecha Ikari of, um, Avoda. How do we know, right, or where, you know, do we know that truma, the eating of truma itself, right, the gift that everybody had to give the Kohanim, is an act of, of, of the Kohanim's avoda. Ditanya, we learned in Abraisa, Masaba Rabbi Tarfon, there was a story with Rabbi Tarfon, Shaloba Amash Lebeit Midrash, that one evening, he didn't come to the Beit Midrash. L'shacharit Matzao Rabban Gamliel. So in the morning, Rabban Gamliel finds him. Now, this is Rabban Gamliel the second. Rabbi Tarfon is of this, you know, third generation uh, Tana. We'll talk a little bit more about him. Amarlo, Ravan Gamliel says, Why didn't you come back last evening to the Beit Midrash? Amarlo, Rabbi Tarfon answers Ravan Gamliel, Avoda Avaditi, I was performing the Avoda. Now, remember again, this is amazing for him to say because if he's a third generation Tana, he clearly is not living during the times of the, uh, you know, well, he lives sort of at the around the period of the destruction of the Second Temple, right? But he lived in Yavna, so he's not living in Yerushalayim. He's not doing the avoda of the Kohanim, and yet what he's telling Rav Gamliel is avoda avaditi. I was performing the avoda, and so Rav Gamliel says, "Amrlo kol He says these words that you said are a mystery. How could there be avoda now, right? Because Rav Gamliel is basically saying that. The, the Beit HaMikdash has been destroyed. What Avoda could you possibly be doing? Amarlo, right? So Rabbi Tarpon says, Harehu Omer, right? And so now he quotes a uh, pasuk here from Bamidbar, Perak Yudchet, Pasuk Zion, uh, you know, Numbers chapter 18, verse 7. Avodat matana atain et kuhunatzchem v'hazar hakarev yuman. Right? The Avoda of gifts, right? That's the Avodat matana. I have given your priests. And a non-Kohen who approaches them shall die. So this is sort of talking about the priestly gifts, all these different gifts that they would, that the Kohanim would get. But it doesn't say matana etenakunatchem. It says avodat. The fact that it uses the word the avoda, that's what he's talking about. Asu truma bigvulin. Right. So we see that here that the you know the Torah considers the eating of truma. Right, big vulin in the provinces, right? Because Truma didn't have to be eaten in the Beit Hamikdash. Truma could just be eaten wherever the Kohen got it. Kavodat Beit Hamikdash. It's like the avoda of the Beit Hamikdash. Um, and so, you know, using this word of avoda, um, you know, he makes this he makes this jump. So I actually thought it was a beautiful brisa, um, and I think it's a key part to who Rabbi Tarfon was. So I just mentioned that Rabbi Tarfon was a third century Tana. And he was a Kohen, and he was very proud to be a Kohen. And one of the interesting things that we know about him is there's a Tosefta that talks about that at a time of famine, he actually married 300 women so that they could all eat truma. Like that was a way of using his, co- what he was entitled to as a Kohen to solve a problem because these women could eat truma um, and if they were married to a Kohen. And so that's uh, one of the things that he did. Uh, one of the other stories that he's very famous which, for. Which is a story that needs a lot more unpacking at a different time. Oh, yes. We will unpack this at a totally different time because I think one can make an argument. Why are we giving truma if there's a famine? There's a, 
Did he, what does it mean that he literally married 300 women? Right. There's a lot of unpacking there, but I'm bringing it up here because I think it goes with his personality of like, he was very proud to be a Kohen. And I think living in the time where it's immediately after the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, he was trying to find any way to sort of honor the fact that he was a Kohen. Um, one of the other stories that he's very, very famous for as well is there's a famous story about his mother. Uh, this is a Gemara and Kedushan that we'll get to where he put his hands underneath his mother's feet, um, you know, as an act of Kibbut Ava'im uh, for his mother to cross to cross a road. Um, you know, there's another thing that talks about that he was a priest one in, in a pitch on Haben ceremony, but he gave the money back because he, he was quite wealthy also. So, um, so that's all, that's all. Just wanted to do who's who about who Rabbi Tarfon is. Again, he's keeping company. He's a teacher of Rabbi Akiva. Um, and this is who he's keeping company with, uh, with Rabbi Gamliel. And he's a Kohen. Um, and I, uh, I thought this Brisa was just a good opportunity to talk a little bit about him. He has, he, he tends to side more with like Beit Shammai. Um, and there, he, you'll see he has a lot of machlokas with Rabbi Akiva. You know, so that's also important to say. A lot of times you'll see it's Rabbi Tarpon and Rabbi Akiva together. Okay, so I'm going to now come on to Ayan Gimel proper um, at 73. And the case that I want to approach at the from the, it's a couple of lines down, uh, several lines down, I guess, in the beginning, from the beginning of the daf, will work to frame the rest of the daf. Amale Rav Huna Barachinan Alivrei, ki azalt lekame de Rav Zerika baimine, so this is a case where Rav Hunabrachina says to his son, when you go before Rav Zrika, and we've looked him up, and he, he's got an unusual name, but he seems to be a, what, what did you say, fourth century, fourth generation Amora? Fourth, fourth generation Amora in Eretz Yisrael. In Eretz Yisrael, and we'll encounter him later, and we'll do a proper who's who when we do. But in this case, right, he's here as... Um, he's not really the, the topic, right? The topic is what Rav Huna Barachinana says to his son, which is when you go to before him, ask him, meaning bring this case to him. The case is where you have, there's an opinion when somebody who would inflict a wound on Shabbat would be exempt. Now this requires us to rethink some backstory that we really already know because we've already learned Masachat Shabbat and we've talked about Malachah Machshevet. I know it's weeks and months ago, right? Where we talked about Malacha Machshevet, where there's certain qualifications for a Malacha on Shabbat to count as a Malacha, right? That it has to have certain component parts or elements, or you don't ha- you have an in an incomplete action to count as something that would then be obligated, you know, where you'd be obligated to bring a korban chatat, where you to do it b'shogeg on Shabbos with all of the different caveats that that carries. In this case, we're talking about a wound, and a wound on the one hand is an action. Right and has an outcome, but there's nothing positive about it. And in general, one of the cat, one of the five main things of Malacha Machshevet is tikkun. Tikkun meaning fixing. It, it it's something that is done. It is. I don't have a good English for this. Your Dana, do you have a good English for this? No, it's actually I find a very awkward r- word here, um, and it's really because tikkun means to fix, and it's not. That it's a, I, I almost would say it's constructive. Like it needs to have some okay, that works. it needs to have some constructive purpose. It can't completely be a destructive act. And so I think within the context of Shabbat, you know, if somebody, I don't know, has a temper tantrum and decides to destroy, you know, something, 
you're not going to be hired for that because it just was destructive. It was just to destroy something. I mean, well, so so let me let me pick this up back to our case. Right. If you go destroy, I don't know, uh, a bench right on Shabbos, that would be the case. Right. It's only destructive and nothing positive comes out of it. But when we're talking about an injury, right, if you cause a wound on Shabbos where there's no constructive effect at all on, you know, the person, it feels, you know, destructive. It is entirely destructive. But when we're talking about that this is bringing about an injury on another person, the there's a psak in Shabbos, right, that really one would be chayev. But here we're talking about according to the person who says, nonetheless, in this case of the injury, and I just want to say that one of the reasons that, that those who say that you'd be chayev, the way they can conceive of it is that um, in this act, you have a com- you really have a complete act. Meaning, if you are being destructive of a, of a, an object, right? And then what? There's no and then what. But if you're being destructive of on a person's body, the injury itself kind of comes full circle to be what it is. Meaning, what it is is an injury, and that's it. So again, this is this is um, a little bit abstract in terms of figuring out how we're going to talk about what's constructive in an injury. And in any case, this question that should go before Rav Zrika, the question is, when you have this, according to those who say that this should be patur, then what happens? What would those same people say about shechato shalola ochlav, chayav? When we say that the person who shechted the Korban Pesach, but not in the not for the purpose of those who would be eating from it, and he's done it on Shabbos, and now they can't eat from it. But he's going to be chayev uh, chatat for having done the shechita on Shabbos. Isn't that also, the implication of the question is, isn't that also a destructive act that, according to the opinion that says it's patur, that it should have no, no constructive anything, and he should, be, he should be exempt from the chatat, even, you know, his korban pesach is still going to be disqualified, but he should be exempt. So I really like this case. And the fact is that here we have one piece of Gemara that is in the area of Hilchot Shabbat, and it is comparable, but we might not have thought of it. So the Gemara does that for us, and it puts it together and say, and says, why isn't this case of the Shechita, which is fundamentally destru- destructive, right? Why isn't it the same as that other case of the destruction of an injury against a person's body? And the... By setting it up that way, I would say, we say, oh, aha, that's a really good question. Because until now, I've said, oh, well, yeah, you've done a, you've done shechita on Shabbos, that's a malacha, and, it, and it's not for the constructive purpose of bringing a karban, right? So then it's just shechita, and therefore it's stam, meaning it has no purpose, per se, and isn't that the violation of the malacha on Shabbos? And when the Gemara here comes and says, ah, but if there's no constructive purpose, then isn't it lacking in its constructive element that it needs from Malacham Achshevet, and shouldn't he be exempt? And so that, I think, is really a, a, a very well-set-up, sharp question. And the Gemara, of course, has an answer. Tikain, he improved it. He's improved it. Why? If they've, you know, and now the Gemara is going to jump through hoops, and we're not going to talk about all of the different cases here, but in each case, it tries to figure out how, in fact, was this shrita an improvement on, I don't know, on this animal's lot, lot in life prior to being shechted. Tikain, im alu, lo yerdu. 
right? Meaning once the pieces of this animal are brought on the Mizbeach, you don't ever take them down. Meaning the offering will still go to Hashem. And isn't that identity as being a korban, uh, a more constructive identity, isn't that a more positive thing? So really the korban ends up being benefit, you know, being it's hard to say benefited, right? But it's a, a constructive thing in the shrit itself, right? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I, this passage is very good because I think it's what it's recognizing is, is that is it almost too punitive to punish the person when they do this accidental shrita? You know, like you really, you wasted an animal. There's nothing you can do with it, right? We're, we're going to see later on, you know, on the DAP, there's a whole discussion. Do you burn it right away? Do you have to wait for something, you know, for it to change a little bit, meaning that it's not in the time where it normally could have been, would have been burned as a korban. Like it's really a waste. And so in a way, I think the Gemara is acknowledging, you know, how can you make somebody high for chatas for something that just ends up being a waste? Like it just had no purpose at all. And so therefore, you know, it does have this concept of tikkun from Shabbos and it does want to sort of, I guess, be consistent or at least try to say, well, yeah, there, you still got a little bit of benefit. It still, it still was a little bit constructive. Right. And, and as I say that this whole Amud basically it goes through and says, Mati came, like, what is the case? And, and it goes through several different examples where you can say, you know, for example, you, you did the Shrita and then you discovered that it was one of these Trefa Beseta, one of these animals that was going to die on its own within the next year. So now you can't offer it as a carbon. There you have it as a waste. What have you done? You know, in what way? Why should you be chayev for the korban chatat for this if you did it on Shabbos? And the Gemara says, no, but it took it out of that category of ending up as an avela that the animal just died. This way, it ends up being a proper shkita, and isn't that elevating the animal? Right, which right? was and fascinating. Then, yeah. Like, what does that mean? Like, did it do something for the animal? <laughs> but, but I guess it. Yeah, I don't know. It it felt it did at least something constructive. Right. And so, and, and each, and there's, again, you know, what happens when somebody shechs a, a chatat on Shabbat, right, outside of the Beit HaMikdash, because we're talking about an Avodah Zara offering, right? And, and this goes on, right? And so, Mati came, and the, and the Gemara answers, Amarav Avira Shemotimi Dei Aver Minhachai. So, this is going to take it out of the category of the limbs of a living animal, which we've talked about in the past in terms of the Shiva Mitzvot B'nai Noach. But the issue here is that, you know, the non Jew might have been having a, an, using this animal for some kind of ritual, which would have been eating the meat from the living animal. And this way, the animal is shechted, and we can say it's got its own benefit in this as well. Right? I mean, this, this formulation of Mati Kane, you know, what is the tikkun? What is the constructive thing that is done in this shrita and then the different attempts of, of different cases to provide a different you know a new answer um is is i think a good effort i mean right meaning i don't mean i don't mean to be uh pandering i think that the gemara is clear that in each case you need to find what was the constructive purpose here because at the end of the day the person who did the shrita has to bring a korban a korban chatat so it's not incidental. It's not incidental to say, oh, there's really constructive value here. They're looking for it because we know that the psak is korban chatat. So there has to be something that, that justifies it, even for the person who says mekalkel b'chabura would be exempt. Right? Obviously, the person who says mekalkel b'chabura is chayav, 
well, then you're fine. Then then any shita should be not an issue. Right. Um, I'm going to move on then to another concept on this staff, which is the one of Akira. And that was actually introduced on Daf Ayan on, on page on Daf 70. Um, and so what the Gemara really wants to talk about is they have a brisa here, um, uh, you know, that shows that, you know, that basically talks about that the the carcass, right, that if it was burned, you strap me at it needs to be. Uh, sorry, if it's Bechol, if this thing happened with the Pesach and it ends up being disqualified, Yisraf Miyad, we burn it, um, we burn it immediately, right? So if it's disqualified for being offered as a sacrifice, we have to burn it right away. And it specifies that it specifically has to be on a weekday because obviously you can burn on a weekday, not on Shabbat or on Chag. So, you know, Rav Chista, right? Well, well, basically we saw that Rav had this view before that, when an animal gets disqualified, right? Like, in other words, you have a Pesach, a Korban Pesach, and it gets disqualified, it now can become as a Shlomim, right? You could bring it as a Shlomim. And so the question is, how does that happen? Does it have to happen with Akira or without Akira? Um, so, Iyamar Bishlama by Akira, this is at the top of Ahmed Bad, right? If you want to say that sort of this Korban designation requires Akira. So what is Akira? Akira is almost what, I mean, some of the English translations are sort of a conscious uprooting. Um, and I was thinking again about this idea of Shabbos, right? Like we had this parallel with, with the Tikkun for Shabbos, um, but also Akira, when we talked about Hotza, remember that carrying needs to have two parts, Akira, right? Like the actual uprooting, <laughs> the lifting of the object itself, and then the Hanacha, like that you placed it actually somewhere, you settled it somewhere else. So we have the same word of Akira again. And here what it's trying to say is, is that like you consciously had to uproot it. I mean, you're obviously physically not uprooting it, but in some way you have to say like, I acknowledge or, or did you have the intention? That's one thing Anne and I, we were trying to figure out, was it, is it verbal? Is it just mental? Right. But basically saying like, I know that this Korban Pesach can no, this animal can no longer be a Korban Pesach. It's been disqualified. And so I now know it's going to be a shlomim, right? Like that's Akira. It's consciously doing that. Rav actually feels that it happens automatically. You don't need to use Akira. That's actually Rav's opinion. Um, and that, you know, that, that's, that whole discussion is actually, um, you know, that, that discussion starts on, uh, on Amud Ayin. Um, so high Pesachu. So then the offering is still a Pesach. So in other words, if you require Akira, then the offering just stays as a Pesach. The cave is lacely Balim, but in this case here where it has no owners, in other words, something happens to the Chabura and it has no more owners, right? Then its disqualification is in the offering of itself. In other words, the Pesach is disqualified. You can't slaughter, right? You're slaughtering it only on behalf of the, of the people who are, well, who are registered to eat it. And here you have no people who are registered to eat it, right? Everybody withdrew from that korban without the person who was doing it actually. So he basically ends up doing shlita for a group of people who weren't registered for it. And so therefore the disqualification that happens here, it, it has to do with the korban Pesach itself, right? It's no longer a korban Pesach because it doesn't have owners to it anymore, right? It's, it's, it's bigufo. Um, so on account of this, it should actually just be burned um, immediately, right? So in other words, if it's big if it's disqualified, like internally, basically, I guess, or by, you know, it, it of itself is disqualified, 
um, you should just have to burn it right away. Ella Iamar Lobai Akira. But it, and sorry, and that's a brisa that was quoted earlier that said that, you know, that you would burn it right away. So what they're trying to say is, is that this brisa has to hold by the principle of, of Akira. Ella Iamar Lobai Akira. But if you're going to say that you don't require Akira, right? In other words, it just changes automatically. Then from the beginning, the moment that those owners said, we're no longer part of this, this was just the shlemim. Pisulu mishum mai. So then the question is, what's its actual disqualification? Like what made it disqualified, right? Because it's a shlemim, it doesn't make a difference if you had registered, like if you had somebody registered for it or you didn't have somebody registered for it. Why should you have to burn this. And so then the Gemara is going to spend the whole rest of the page trying to figure out how can this jive, this brisa with Rav's opinion. But I just wanted to focus on this concept of Akira, right? Which I think is interesting that when this disqualification happens um, under any of the circumstances that we're talking about in the Mishnah, right? That this Korban Pesach can no longer be a Korban Pesach, whether because it turned out to be, you know, Trefa, whether it turned out to be uh, you know, the registrants left or uh, I, I don't know, they, they listed all those variety of reasons. Did you actually have to have Akira or you did not have to have Akira? And uh, the language around it, using that word Akira, again, is interesting to me because it does have a parallel to the halachot of Shabbat. But it's also interesting to me, the doc never specifies, and maybe it will later, like, how does that Akira actually take place? Like, is it verbal? Is it just mental? Like, how does a person actually show that process of Akira? So one of the things that I'm struck by with this process of Akira or the attention to the need for Akira is that it brings me back. And I'm saying here conceptually, I'm not saying that it's really intent. I'm, I'm not saying that it's, you know, halachically connected, but it seems to me to be at least thematically connected to this need for tikkun, right? The, the Akira means that you are fundamentally converting the korban, right? So that you are... You're boosting it, right, in some way. And again, I don't want to make it. I don't want to. I don't want to put. I don't want to say it too strongly. But there's something there, I think, for me that makes it makes it makes sense that this daf opens and closes with, you know, these bookends, so to speak, of the same kind of thing. Yeah, and I, you know, again, seeing these concepts or these parallels from Shabbat is just. It's always interesting where sort of the same language pops up and up again. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rink us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to our Benit Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hodgin website. Let us know what you thought about the staff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.